I like to study history. History has always been my favorite subject. I read and spend my free time studying all sorts of history, from biblical history to world history to American history, uh, even the history of North Carolina. I, I enjoy history, and probably if I wasn't in full-time ministry or wasn't called to ministry, I hopefully would be teaching history somewhere on a college level. Uh, I love it that much. But one of the things you learn whenever you begin to study history is that not only are you studying history, but you also become a student of sociology, the study of people. Because what I believe is that the most important stories in history are the stories of everyday people, the stories of people like you and I and how they lived, how they interacted with things going on around them, and how the events that they lived through affected them. So I enjoy reading biographies, biographies from leaders and from presidents and from uh, great statesmen all the way down to everyday people to see how people are involved in and through our history. And, uh, you know, if there is ever a place where history and sociology intersect, it is when we begin to talk about the decision-making and the thinking of people. Now, I know last week I gave you a grammar lesson, so this week it's going to be a little history lesson. I'm trying to help those of you that start school next week get ready uh, to start school. But one of the concepts that sociology and history always intersect on is the idea of groupthink. Now, groupthink is a word that you may not be familiar with, so let me give you a definition. It is when groups of people making decisions or accepting decisions based on the values of the group over or at the expense of their individual values or their individual beliefs. You see, groupthink is when we come together as a group and those within the group submit their own decisions or their own uh, values or beliefs and they, they suppress that for the group and what the group decides to do. Uh, unity in, is usually the goal of groupthink, but what always ends up happening is not unity, but uniformity, because it gets forced upon the group to go with the decision that whatever the group has made. And what's interesting is that you find in groupthink that even when people within the group uh, disagree or have different values or different morals than what the group's decision is, they will remain silent and they will go along with whatever the group does. Now, if you study history, you'll find groupthink all throughout every society in history. You see it a lot in the Far East where they suppress individuality for the cause of the group, but you also see it in the Persians, you see it in the Egyptians, you see it in the Greeks, and you see it in the Romans. Uh, all of those cultures exhibit groupthink. Probably the most common or, or closest modern example of groupthink that most of you would recognize happened in Nazi Germany uh, before World War II, during World War II, and the German uh, persecution of the Jewish people. You see, after the war, many people that were everyday Germans were asked, how could you just sit by and allow these atrocities to happen? How could you just, uh, every day, for almost... 13 years allow people that you knew, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, your, your fellow students to be ushered away, to be persecuted, and to be killed simply because they are of a different nationality. And most of the Germans gave the excuse that they didn't know, which is impossible to not know. 
what was going on. But you see what happened when they began to talk to him is that these Germans, even when they understood that the behavior of the leading party was immoral and, and was amoral and was against their values and against what they stood for, they went along with it to be accepted into the culture. Sociologists have found this and studied this and they, they take groups of students, of children, and they'll get a group of 10 children and they will impress upon three or four of the children the same answer that they're going to find from the group so that those three or four can work together to influence the rest of the group to see how long it takes before group think takes over and one of the examples I read was uh, they were going to have the group of children discuss what kind of snack they wanted for for school what snack were, was the teacher going to give them and they impressed upon the three or four students I think it was four students the idea that the snack that they were wanting was going to be rice cakes. Some of you may like rice cakes. I don't, okay? I would rather eat a coaster. It takes about the same, same consistency. Uh, and especially when I was 8, 9, or 10, I didn't want to eat rice cakes for my snack. And so as the group came together, some would say, I want a cookie, or, or we want cake, uh, or we want candy. And, and this group of children began to say, we want rice cakes. And they began to argue, and they began to go around the group and discuss. And over time, they found that the rest of the group was willing to go along with the ones who had decided on something that most of them didn't even like simply because they wanted to be accepted by the group or accepted by the rest of the children. Now, we don't need a study to be able to see this. We see it in our own lives. We see it in the groups of people that we hang out with. That over time, most of the time, it is, it, it's not a conscious decision. It happens unconsciously. But over time, we begin to talk like, and we begin to dress like, and we begin to act like, and even begin to think like those that we hang around all of the time. Now, we call it peer pressure sometimes in today's society, but it's even deeper than peer pressure when it begins to influence what you believe and what your moral values are. There's a difference in dressing like somebody and thinking like somebody and going against what you know to be true simply so you can be accepted in the group. That's groupthink. And one of the things sociologists have come up with is that we as humans, our default mode when it comes to groupthink, when it comes to us living with one another, is conformity. You see, if we do not do anything to fight against it, to stand against it, or to speak up, if we are just passive, we will always end up conforming to what the majority of the people that we are around think and believe. And while it's easy for us to see that happening in our nation, that happening in our friendships, that happening in our churches, it was even more of a problem for the early church. Because you see, the early Christians found themselves living in a culture that was one of the most hostile towards Christians that there ever has been, the Roman culture. They were living under Roman rule. And the Roman system of values and beliefs and, and desires was almost diametrically opposed to what the Bible says and to what the Bible teaches. And so that leads Paul to write this famous verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there. As I said, we are in this short series in uh, Romans 12, 1, where we spent the last 
uh, two weeks has been foundational and we are about to build on, to continue on, the principles laid out in Romans 12.1. Uh, what he laid out in the last two weeks, and if you missed it, I encourage you to listen to our podcast and you can catch up. He is going to build on by giving us some examples of how you and I can do what he asked us to do in Romans 12.1. So as I start in just a minute, I'm going to go back and read 12.1 and read it into 12.2 because the context of what he is saying is very important. It's easy for us, and you, you've heard people quote Romans 12.1 or Romans 12.2 on their own. And on their own they stand, but when you put them together and understand the context, it changes the power that God's Word has for our lives. It changes the power of what it means for us. Now remember what Paul is talking about here in Romans 12. He's not talking about this action being salvific. And what that means is, what he is asking us to do is apart from our conversion experience. We don't do what he's asking us to do in 12, 1 and 2 to be saved. We do it because we are saved. And so you need to understand that, that he is talking about a choice that you and I make that is apart from accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He's talking about doing something that is our free will choice. Now also understand and remember he's talking about something that relates to sanctification. And many times in the church, Christians get the idea of sanctification and justification confused. Justification is something that we are given by grace and by faith. It means being made right with God. You can't do anything to have that happen. You can't work and serve and come to church and give and be justified you are justified by Jesus Christ's death on the cross, His burial, and His resurrection. That is what justifies you. That is what makes you right before God. The only part you have in that is accepting that His gift of His life was, was justified, that it was right for you, and receiving that and making it a part of your life. Sanctification is what happens after we're saved. It is the process of becoming more like Christ in how we live. In almost every one of Paul's letters, in almost every one of the New Testament letters, what they are talking about is taking what we believe and applying it to our lives for sanctification. God didn't want us to be any different than we were the moment we were saved, and He would take us to heaven. But we're called to live, as we learned last week, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God, that our lives, as we grow as Christians, are to become more like Jesus. Because it's in those areas of our life that we start acting like Jesus and thinking like Jesus and applying Jesus' principles to our lives that we're blessed. That's what the Beatitudes said from our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who meek. And those are characteristics that aren't natural to us. We have got to apply those. And with the Holy Spirit's power, we become more like Christ. And so he is talking in Romans 12, 1 and 2 about sanctification. So let's look what he, what he says here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, I'm not going to rehash what we've been talking about the last two weeks, but I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things as it applies to verse 2. What Paul is saying is that you and I are called, we are compelled, but it's still our choice, to tell God, I am giving you every part of my life. 
to offer ourselves on the altar of our hearts to God. All that we have, all that we are, all that we will ever be, all of our hopes and our dreams, all of our decision making, every area of our life, we are to give it to God freely so that He might do with it as He pleases. And we trust Him to do with it as He pleases. That's what Paul says, that we become living sacrifices. Offer your body unto God so that you might become a living sacrifice. The idea of living in the Old Testament when they gave a sacrifice, the sacrifice was killed. We don't have to be killed as a sacrifice anymore. Jesus was on our behalf. We now become living sacrifices. And the sacrifice we make is ourselves. God, here I am. And what he says is we go on living after we offer ourselves as a sacrifice and everything we do living should be holy which is set apart and glorifying to God. We should ask ourselves, does this please God? Does what I'm doing please God? And Paul tells us that that is the foundation of worship. You see, when we think of worship, we think of singing and we think of the choir and we think of maybe even the preaching or the teaching. But what Paul is saying is that the foundation of worship is you offering yourselves to God. You saying, God, here I am on the altar. And everything else we do that's called worship, giving God His worth, flows out of that sacrifice. If you're not offering yourself as a sacrifice, it's impossible to worship. And the degree of what you offer on the altar to God is always the degree of how you live in God's power once you start living as a sacrifice. I told you last week, mercy is what gets us to the altar. He tells us in this passage, in light of, in view of God's mercy, because of all that God's done for us, He said, your only logical choice is to say, God, here I am. Because of all that you've given me, because of all that you've done for me, all the love and the grace and the mercy that you've shown for me, I offer myself. What gets us on the altar is mercy. What causes us to stay on the altar is grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, saying, God, I want all of you. And what gets us off the altar is worship. Everything we do from the moment we offer ourselves is a sacrifice. And even that act is worship. And so what God is calling us to is to do something that's hard. It's not just a one-time decision. It's every day. It's every day waking up and saying, God, how can I give of myself to you? God, take everything. And as we do that, we become more like Christ because He takes what we give Him and He replaces it with His stuff. You see, the foundation of worship is sacrifice, giving ourselves. And not just to to God, it's giving ourselves to one another. And as we give ourselves to one another, it's in giving that we receive. Now that's hard. We talked about it last week, that is hard for us to do. It's hard because it goes against everything that our old nature wants, our pride. It goes against everything that the world systems that we are surrounded with magnify. So how can we do it? That's where verse 2 comes in. Paul says, let me explain to you how you can daily offer yourself as a sacrifice. How you can daily let this be your cause of worship. How can you do it? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is another well-known passage of scripture and the problem with well-known passages of scripture is we tend to skip by them because it sounds so self-explanatory i mean you read that and when you read that you say i don't need a preacher to tell me what that means it just lays it out there there's three truths in this one verse stop conforming to the world be transformed by the renewing of your mind test god's good perfect and pleasing will 
But when you begin to drill down into it, beyond that surface, you begin to see some very important truths that I think could unlock some things that are going on in your life that will allow you to be more free in giving every area of your life. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to take these in pieces, and we're just going to look at the first two this morning, and we'll look at the last part next week. So what does he say first? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Now, the Greek word for conform there is in the imperative passive form. There's more of that grammar from last week. Imperative is always, it's where we get to do not. It is always uh, asking us, imploring us to do something. It's really even deeper than do not because it comes to the first of the sentence, so you don't have an exclamation mark. What he is saying is, is please, uh, you can't allow this to happen. And it's also in the passive form. Conform is in the passive form, which means that it's not something we do, but something we have done to us, which adds some new light to this passage. So how does that happen? Think back to what I said about groupthink. World here, the idea of world is the word age, and some of your translations say age. It's actually the word aeon, where we get the Latin word eon, which means age. And what that means, what literally it means, is the age in which you're living, the time in which you're living. And pattern, he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this age. The pattern there is not talking so much about behavior. See, I hear a lot of people preach this passage and use it as, as God is saying, don't conform in your behavior to the things of the world. And they, they talk about the way you dress and the things that you watch and the things that you see. And while some of that is included in this, what he means by this word pattern is our mindset. It's our worldview. It's the way that we think about things. It's our thoughts, our opinions, our standards, our hopes, our impulses, our goals, our ambition. So literally what he would be saying, if you looked at the literal from the Greek is, don't let the age in which you live force you into its scheme of thinking and believing. The Living Bible says it this way, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world. The Amplified Bible says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. The Message Bible says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. You see, what he's talking about here, this idea of conforming, is not necessarily talking about the way we dress or, or the, the way our hair is cut or whether we have a tattoo or not or, or what we watch on TV or what we listen to. You see, those things are superficial. He is getting even deeper than that and saying we cannot allow the thoughts and the principles of this age to confront and conform our way of thinking. He's talking about our worldview, the way we look at things. He's talking about our mind. He's talking about where we base all of our decisions on, where our values come from, where our beliefs come from, where our morals come from. He's saying it's very dangerous for those who are saying they are Christ followers to allow the thinking of the world that they live in to influence their mind, to influence their worldview. Now, we learned last week and the week before that behavior always follows belief. That what you believe is going to motivate and be lived out in your behavior. That's why it's so important what you believe. But it also follows backwards that you can determine what somebody believes by watching their behavior. If you look at the way people talk and the way people act, you can identify what their worldview is because it's always going to come out in their behavior. And so what we need to understand is that the Christian worldview that's based on the Bible, that's based on the Word of God, that the Word of God is absolute truth, is very, very different from the worldview that our culture is in. 
It's very different than the predominant thinking and the predominant philosophies that we encounter every day in this nation. And so to help you understand how that works, I'm just going to give you a couple of philosophies that are predominant in our culture today, a couple of worldviews that run counter to the Christian worldview. And as I give you these worldviews, I want you to ask yourselves, are, is there evidence in my thinking? Is there evidence in the way I see the world and the way I make decisions in, of these worldviews? Now, the first one, and probably the largest and most dominant, is a secularist worldview. And even the word secular, where we get secular, it comes from the Latin word meaning age. And so many people believe, because it's the Latin word age, it's the same equivalent of the Greek word aeon, which is the word that Paul uses. Many people think he is directly talking about a secularist mindset. Now let me tell you what secularism believes. They believe that this age and that this world is all there is. There's nothing else out there. The only things that are real to a secularist are what you can see and what you can touch and what you can weigh and what you can measure. We are limited as humans by the natural world. We're limited by right here. There is nothing after. There was nothing before that matters. All that matters is right here, right now. now some of you may remember a couple of years ago, there was a popular saying going around in, in the youth culture and it, even in some young adults. It was YOLO, Y-O-L-O, which stands for you only live once. Well, that is a perfect acronym for secularist mind thinking. It's this idea that I'm only going to live once and all there is in this world is what I can see and what I can touch and what I can feel. And so I'm going to pattern my life according to that philosophy. I'm going to make decisions according to that philosophy. Now there's a lot of different forms of secularism, but probably the most dominant in America today is humanism. And humanism is a form of secularism and we hear it described as secular humanism. And humanism says that humans, we, mankind, are at the center of the universe. That everything revolves around us. Everything is for our benefit and we control everything. Basically what a secular humanist says is that there is no God. I am my own God. I make my own decisions and the focus of my life is on what I want, what pleases me, what I need at the exception of anyone else. You see, for the secular humanist, all they hope to ever do, the goal of their life is to become a better self. And so while a secular humanist may not be amoral, the only morals that they have is based on their own thinking. Basically, we are our own God, and we elevate ourselves above everything else. And a secular humanist worships nature, they worship money, they worship power, they worship position, they worship control, and they worship humanity. But secular humanism is not anything new. Matter of fact, in the very first part of the first book of the Bible, we see secular humanism explained in clear detail when Satan looked at Eve in Genesis chapter 3-5 and said, If you eat this, you will be like God, knowing good for evil. See, what Satan was telling Eve is you can be your own God. And instead of having an absolute truth and absolute good and evil, you get to determine good and evil because you're your own God. And secular humanism is rampant in, in everything that we are involved in today. It's rampant in our education. It's rampant in our uh, entertainment. It's rampant in every area that we encounter when we leave the church. 
It's even involved in religion. We even see a secular humanist mindset in how we approach religion. So many Christians today, they read the Bible thinking that they are the center, that they are the main character, that the Bible is all about them. And so they read the Bible in regards to me being the center of the story. It's not. I hate to burst your bubble. The center of the story, the main character of the book is Jesus Christ. And so what happens is when we place ourselves as the main character of the book, we misunderstand it. We see secular humanism in the attitude that we talked about last week when we go to church to get, to receive. It's all about me. And I go where I like, when I like, how I like. All centered on me. And the dangerous part of secular humanism is that many of us have allowed this mindset to slip in our everyday thinking, in our everyday decision-making, and we no longer even realize or recognize that it's there anymore. You hear it and you see it on TV and you're around it all the time and you're in it in the classroom and you hear it at work all the time. Me, I'm first, whatever's best for me, whatever I want. And it penetrates us so much that we begin to conform to that and we begin to allow that mindset to make decisions for us. And we make decisions based on that mindset. You see, secular humanism and secularism itself will always keep you from offering yourselves up to God. Because humanism appeals to your pride. It appeals to that old self that's still inside you that Paul says we rage again. That old self that wants to be in control, that wants to make all the decisions, that wants to to be the one to get all the glory. And as humanism and the things that we're around just pour that into you, you can't help but allow it to come in. And when that happens, it'll always hinder your intimacy with God, your relationship to God, and it distorts the Christian witness. Another form of secularism that's growing today, we saw it sweep across Europe and it's even sweeping across the United States, it's relativism. You see, relativism is a philosophy of this world that says there is no absolutes in life. Everything is up for grabs. Everything is always changing depending on the culture and depending on the circumstance. There's no absolute law. There's no absolute ethic. There's no absolute tradition. There's no absolute truth. Everything is relative to my opinion, to what I think. You say, is this right or wrong? Well, it might be right in one circumstance. It might be wrong in the other. Well, who determines that? I do. That's relativism. There's no absolute good and evil. Why? Because sometimes it may be evil and sometimes it may be good. If it does good for me, then it's good, even if it's evil for you. And you see what happens with relativism is everything changes. All of our values change, our morals change according to our opinion or our circumstances or our experiences. And in relativism, I become the only judge of what is right and wrong. I become the judge of what is truth. You see, every culture, listen, every nation that fell into secularism or humanism or relativism always grew corrupt and collapsed upon itself because those philosophies eat you up from the inside out. And so many people in church today have embraced parts of these philosophies and had it try to come alongside their Christianity, and and it just doesn't work. Now remember what I said when I started, that our default is conformity. That means if we are not careful, if we are not alert, as Peter says, if we are not on guard, we can allow the values and traditions of the world systems to creep in and begin to influence us. So how can we fight it? In verse 2, do not conform any longer to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Now that word transformed is the Greek word metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. Those of you that like science as a kid, you know that is what you call a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. That process is called metamorphosis. And the idea of metamorphosis or being transformed means a complete, total change. So much of a change that you don't even recognize the elements that were there before. And it's in the active form, so that means transform and keep transforming your mind. Now this word transform is only used four times in the Bible. It's used here, it's used twice in the Gospels where uh, Peter and James and John went with Jesus to what we call the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus allowed them to see Him. He transformed Himself from His human nature to to His heavenly nature, to His heavenly form. And they were amazed. He was transformed. It's the same word. It's also used in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says we are being transformed into Christ's likeness. You see, what this transform means is it indicates a total and complete change in our way of thinking. You see, the only way that you can combat, the only way that you can confront giving in, compromising, conforming, is for you to allow your thinking, your mindset, your worldview to be transformed into God's way. Now you see, conformity always changes us from the outside in. Conformity always starts with the outside. We always start by the way that we look and the things that we do, and it works its way into our hearts and into our mind. Transformation always starts on the inside and works its way out. He says if you want to be transformed, if you want to see your behavior change, it changes with your mind. And so Paul says the best way that you can defeat being conformed into things of this world is to change your mind and allow your mind to be transformed. How does that happen? It happens when we allow the Word of God to become our ultimate source of authority and truth. When we believe that God is not only real, but God speaks to us and God cares about us and God has written His Word for us, it begins to change the way you think. Because you see, when you begin to realize that this book and what is written in it is meant for us and it is meant to help us learn to be more like Christ, it transforms. You can't be the same. Your mind starts changing. The way you think starts changing. You see, before we became Christians, we were the center of attention. We were all humanist. We just didn't know it. But what Paul is saying is that you and I need to make an effort to allow the Word of God to transform our mind so that our worldview, so that our mindset, so our thoughts become the thoughts of God. Because only when our thoughts become the thoughts of God, when only when we begin to see things the way Jesus sees things, the way God sees things, can our life begin to change. Can we become a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God? You see, you can make a list today. You, you can sit down and say, here are the things I need to change. And, you know, if you've been married, you just ask your spouse. They'll give you, you know, sheets and sheets of things you need to change. And you can say, these are the things I'm going to try to change. You can try to change them all you want. But until you change your mindset, you'll never do it. And what happens is when we try to change behavior without changing mind, it just becomes legalism. What Paul is saying is you and I have a gift, uh, you have a weapon that can defeat conformity. How do you defeat it? By changing the way we think. As we read God's Word, as we study it, as we meditate on it, as we place it in our hearts and allow it to become a part of us, you can't help but be changed. It'll always change you. 
But one of the reasons so many Christians struggle with conforming to the world's systems, so many Christians struggle with allowing the world's philosophies to creep into their lives, is they're not getting into God's Word. Apart from 30 minutes on Sunday, or 45 minutes if I'm preaching, we don't get into it. And listen, 25 or 30 minutes on a Sunday morning of hearing this is not enough to combat a week's worth of being overwhelmed and and just compounded and bombarded with the philosophies of the world. You are defenseless. And being defenseless, your only default is to conform unless you use this as a weapon to allow God to transform the way that you think. See, listen, church, I am amazed by some of the cultural and lifestyle changes that we are seeing become acceptable in our nation. And I'm amazed by how many in the church and Christians and even churches themselves are responding to those things. You see, as a Christian, I am supposed to be, I must be accepting and loving and compassionate and serving and welcoming of anyone anyone regardless of their lifestyle regardless of what their choices are why because all of us have sinned anyone is welcome anyone should be ministered to anyone should be reached out to anyone should we should serve regardless of their lifestyle because i was once there my sin may be different than whatever their sin is but i needed grace i needed mercy i needed forgiveness i needed salvation just like they do And whatever sin they may commit, whatever lifestyle choice they make, does not give me an excuse not to love, not to minister, not to serve, not to reach out. But I cannot be affirming. Because, see, affirming by definition means give my approval. And I cannot be affirming of any lifestyle decision or choice that the Word of God calls sin. Because for me to do that, For me to be affirming, for me to approve what God calls sin is sin myself. And it's also the most unloving act a Christian can do. Now I know people say, well listen, I'm I'm affirming this and and I accept this and, and I don't say anything because I'm just trying to love them. It's not loving somebody to be silent when they are in danger of death. See, it's not loving for me to allow my kids to do something that's very dangerous or that might harm them for the sake of them knowing I love them. You see, the greatest way I can show them that I love them is by telling them the truth about what they're about to do. The greatest way I can show them that I love them is by helping them understand how dangerous the choices they are making are. The Bible's very clear about sex outside of marriage. The Bible is very clear about what defines biblical marriage. The Bible is very clear about the purposes of biblical marriage. And Scripture hasn't changed. The Word of God has not changed. Listen, our way of interpreting Scripture has not changed. Church history, the way the church through the last 2,000 years has looked at these issues has not changed. What has changed is our culture and what is now accepted, what now is even celebrated. 
And you see what's changed for some of us. And I want you to hear me. And hear me with a pastor's heart and hear me out of the love. I, I, I want you to understand this. You see, what has changed for some of us that's changed our mindset and how we relate to some of these issues is some of us have good friends or even family members that are making those choices and living those lifestyles. And having someone close to you Make those kind of choices. I don't care what kind. I'm not specifically talking about anything. I'm talking about anything that is counter to God's Word that is being celebrated in the world today. And you see what happens is when somebody close to us is going through, and I saw this happen with people that were so anti-abortion, but when they had a family member that got pregnant, some of them, their first response, their first reaction was to say, we need to have an abortion. What changed? The Word of God didn't change. The truth of the Word of God didn't change. What changed is their circumstance and their situation. And you see what is happening in the church and what is happening to Christians is we are allowing our familiarity with those who are making wrong choices and bad choices to influence and shape the way we read Scripture and the way we understand truth. You see what we are doing is we are allowing our experience or our feelings or our opinion to overwhelm the truth and begin to shape our thoughts. When we elevate what we think, when we elevate what we feel over truth and over what is God's Word, you are in danger of falling away from God. You see, we have this new truth. But the problem is absolute truth never changes no matter what the culture does. People say, oh, but it, 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 it's more rampant today. People are living together and people are, teenagers are having sex at a younger age, so it's more rampant, it's more acceptable. Listen, our culture today is nothing compared to the immorality that was in the Roman and the Greek empires and cultures. Rampant then, and that's when this word was written. But you see, what we've done is we've allowed our opinion, we've allowed our feelings to be elevated over truth. And then we try to find somebody to say the way we are thinking and the way we are feeling is okay. And that's easy. I mean, Paul told Timothy, you can always find somebody that will tickle your ears and tell you what you want to hear and make you feel good by patting on your back. That doesn't change the authority of the Word of God. That's conformity. God wants you to be transformed. He wants to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm going to talk more about it next week when we look at the second part of verse 2 and knowing God's will for your life. But let me just close with this. Trying to change your behavior without a renewed mind, without changing your thinking, is impossible. It all starts with making this the authority of your life. It all starts with believing that this is God's Word and that it is absolute, that truth is not subjective, that truth is not based on opinion, truth is not based on what the majority thinks, because you see when we fall into groupthink, when we fall into conformity, and we suppress what we know and what we believe is truth, you'll always find yourself in a dangerous place. See, this morning some of you need a transformation. And God wants to transform your mind. He wants to transform your thinking the same way He's already transformed your heart. Totally new. 
so that when you hear and when you see things and you make decisions, it's made through the lens of the authority of the Word of God. See, the biblical term for changing your mind, we use it all the time. It's repentance. Repentance literally means to change the way we think about something and accept God's way of thinking about something. The literal Greek word for repentance means to think the same thing. It means that we allow our thinking to be what God's thinking is. And you see, this morning, behavior change, mind change, starts with repentance. It starts with examining your thoughts, examining your worldview, examining your philosophy, and asking yourself, does this line up with the Word of God? Because if it doesn't, then you need to repent. You need to get your thinking lined up with His thinking. Repentance is not behavioral change. It's mind change. And mind change only can happen, and I'm done. Here's the key. Your way of thinking can only be changed when you are first willing to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Because when you offer yourself to God and you say, God, take all of it, that includes the way you think and the way you see things. So this morning, the issue for many of us is not, well, I'm going to work on changing my mind. The issue for you is to say, am I going to surrender everything? Because, see, I know this is relevant today because some of you are conflicted. Some of you are struggling. You're saying, but pastor, this is the way I feel, and, and you don't understand this is the way I've always thought, and this is the way I've always feel. That's fine. I'm not trying to change your mind. All I'm asking is, are you willing to take the way you've always thought and the way you've always felt and offer it on the altar to God and to see what He gives you in return? Because that's the test. Let's pray.